Please take a seat. And let's come before God in prayer. Let's all pray. Father, as we've just sung to you in these beautiful words, we praise and thank you that our Lord Jesus has lived that perfect life of love and all the work that you gave him to do. Uh, he accomplished perfectly, was faithful uh, right to the last, obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. And he is now risen. He is ascended. And he is in the place of glory. And we praise you for Jesus and all that he has done for us. And as we turn to these verses now, Father, we ask for your help, for me and for all of us, that we might know our Savior more and love him and worship him for all that he has done for us. And in his great name, we ask these things. Amen. Well, it'd be great if you could uh, please keep your Bibles open at those verses we read earlier on in our service tonight. And here at Crumlin EPC, we've been working our way through Luke's Gospel for quite some time now. And we've followed Luke's account of the life of Jesus right from the start of Luke's Gospel. With, of course, the account there of the nativity story. And we enter this evening into chapter 22. And at this point we enter into what we might describe as the sharp end of Luke's gospel. In these final three chapters, 22, 23 and 24, we come to the end game. And the events described to us in these final three chapters of the gospel... They really are the most significant events in all of human history. And gradually throughout Luke's story, uh, the tension has been building, uh, the plot has been thickening, uh, the stakes have been rising, and now it all comes to a head. And we get that sense, don't we, of things coming to a head in these verses to which we turn this evening. And we're going to notice tonight that there are two different plans in these verses. And these two plans are on a collision course with one another. On the one hand, there is the plan of destruction. And then on the other hand, there is the plan of salvation. And these two plans are about to go head to head. And of course, there can only be one winner. So the question is, well, which plan is going to come out on top in the end? How will this great story conclude? With destruction or with salvation? So let's look at these two plans and how Luke sets them before us in these verses tonight. And first of all, we'll look at the plan of destruction. By which I mean, of course, the plan to destroy Jesus. And by so doing, the plan to destroy all that Jesus came into this world to accomplish. The plan to stop Jesus in his tracks. The plan to get rid of Jesus once and for all. And we see that in these verses, there are three main movers, if you like, in this plan of destruction. 
And in these verses, they all come together, they join forces in order to try and destroy and defeat Jesus. So who are those three movers in this plan of destruction? Well, firstly, we have, of course, the religious leaders. And we've seen already in Luke's gospel that the religious leaders have made no secret of their opposition to Jesus. Remember how throughout chapter 20 in particular, those religious leaders kept coming to Jesus time and time again whilst he was preaching in the temple, trying to catch him, trying to catch him out in something that he might say so that they could then have him arrested and bring his ministry to a halt. And as far back as chapter 19, verses 47 and 48, Luke has told us that the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy Jesus. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. They would have loved to have got rid of Jesus sooner. But the problem was that the crowds were enraptured with what Jesus was saying to them, enthralled with his preaching. These crowds of people flocked to hear him in great numbers. Uh, They listened intently to what Jesus said. How do you kill someone like that without there being a, a huge uproar? And when we get here to chapter 22, they're still grappling with that same problem, aren't they? How do you do away with someone who is just so popular? So look at verse 2. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. And you see, it's the same problem, isn't it? They still want to have Jesus killed, but they're still worried about what the crowds will do if that were to happen. The final verse of chapter 21 has told us that early in the morning, the people would come to the temple so that they could hear Jesus preaching to them. And those religious leaders hate it because they hate Jesus. They hate how his teaching exposes their sin and their hypocrisy. And they're frustrated because they just can't get at him yet. This plan of destruction, which they have been plotting for a while now, just doesn't seem to be getting anywhere. And then that all changes, doesn't it, when the second mover in this plan very unexpectedly comes to visit them. And of all people, it is one of the twelve disciples, it is Judas Iscariot, who comes to meet with the religious leaders in order to betray Jesus to them. So Luke writes, Judas went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. This is exactly what the religious leaders were hoping for. The perfect opportunity just falls into their lap. One of Jesus' own disciples is going to hand him over to them. Judas is going to watch and 
wait for just the right moment. When Jesus is away somewhere quiet, the crowds are nowhere to be seen, and then he will hand Jesus over to the religious leaders. The question that many people have asked is, well, why on earth did Judas want to do that? Why did he want to betray Jesus, hand him over, get him killed ultimately? And I think the Gospels show us really two main reasons why Judas did this. The first is because of his greed. Uh, Judas was a greedy man. He loved money. That's very clear as you read the Gospels, isn't it? Remember what John tells us in John chapter 12. That story when Mary anoints the feet of Jesus with very expensive perfume. And John writes, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Judas, you see, was filled with this idolatrous love of money. One way or another, uh, he'd ended up as the person who was in charge of the, the common purse, the, the kitty for Jesus and the disciples, out of which they would buy whatever food and such like that they needed. And as well as that, clearly give money to the poor as well. And when no one was looking, John tells us, Judas would help himself uh, to some of that money. And so when Mary poured this very expensive perfume over Jesus' feet, Judas was frustrated. It felt like a missed opportunity for him. Uh, he huffs about it, doesn't he? Uh, as if to say, Mary, why couldn't you have just sold that perfume and just given a financial donation to Jesus instead? And then we, we could have passed all of that money on to the poor. And of course, he only wanted it as a financial donation so that he could take a cut of it for himself. You see, Judas is presented to us in the Gospels as this man who is filled with the idolatrous love of money. That love of money which is a root of all kinds of evils. And so it's no surprise to us, is it, that when Judas betrays Jesus, money changes hands. And he takes his 30 pieces of silver because he cares more for money than he does for Jesus. And it is a very stark warning to us, isn't it, that it is possible for a person to walk closely with Jesus and for someone to be known as one of his disciples, someone to be involved in the work of ministry in a very prominent way, and then in the end to be seen as a fraud and to turn his back on Jesus. And in particular, it's a warning, isn't it, about the love of money. How tempting, how enticing it is. J.C. Ryle writes, Let us watch and pray against the love of money. It is a subtle disease and often far nearer to us than we suppose. A poor man is just as liable to it as a rich man. It is possible to love money without having it and it is possible to have money without loving it 
Let us be content with such things as we have. We never know what, might, what we might do if we became suddenly rich. Paul warns us, doesn't he, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Those words are true of Judas, aren't they? And Paul is saying, be on your guard against this love of money. And so Judas betrayed Jesus out of greed, love for money. He saw this as an opportunity to make himself some quick money because he cared more for money than he cared for Jesus. But of course, greed is not the only reason why Judas switched sides and now aligns himself with the plan of destruction. Because as well as that, there is, of course, the work of Satan. And that brings us to the third mover in this plan of destruction, Satan himself. Satan, who is the archenemy of Christ. Satan, who is opposed to Christ and to Christ's purposes and Christ's people in every way. Remember how, back in the Garden of Eden, God declared spiritual war on the serpent, a warfare which has raged down the centuries ever since. And generation after generation has split the human race into two groups of people. As people have taken their side on this spiritual warfare, standing either with Christ or standing with Satan. And ever since Genesis 3, God has told us that this great spiritual warfare would reach its culmination, would come to a head in an ultimate battle between Christ and Satan, in which the Christ would be wounded, but in which Satan would be ultimately defeated. Remember those words of Genesis chapter 3. I will put enmity, the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And here is Jesus, the one who fulfills this prophecy, the serpent crusher, the one who will stamp on Satan's head and destroy him. And yet Satan is arrayed against him and opposes him in every way. And earlier on in Luke's gospel, Satan had thrown his best efforts against Jesus. He tried his best to knock Jesus off course, tried to make him fail in his mission. And Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And Jesus never succumbed even once to the fiercest temptations that the enemy could throw at him. And then remember how that story ends back in Luke chapter 4. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And here in Luke chapter 22, that opportune time has now arrived. Luke tells us that Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. Judas came under the control of the, the spiritual personification of evil. And he would be used by Satan as a key agent in this plan of destruction. And of course that doesn't exonerate Judas in any way. 
But it does show us, doesn't it, that there's more going on here simply than the greed of Judas. Luke underlines for us here the the full spiritual dimensions of, of what is going on here. That behind the actions of Judas and even behind the actions of the religious leaders as well, there is Satan. He's pulling the strings and he's about to throw his worst against Christ in order to try and destroy him and defeat his mission. And so as Satan enters Judas and as Judas then meets with the religious leaders, these three main movers in the plan of destruction join forces and their plan gathers momentum. And then remember that there's another plan going on here as well. There's not just the plan of destruction taking place here. As well as that, the plan of salvation is also moving ahead. And in these verses, there are three different ways in which we see this plan of salvation continuing in its procession. Uh, So first of all, notice how Jesus remains faithful in his ministry. That's the first aspect of this plan of salvation, continuing to move forward. Jesus remains faithful in his ministry. And with all of this opposition building against him, what does Jesus do? You could understand it, couldn't you? If he were to run and hide somewhere, uh, try and escape from this trap that the religious leaders and Judas and Satan were setting for him. You can understand if Jesus did a runner here. But no, we discover, don't we, that Jesus remains faithful in his ministry. So we see that in chapter 37, sorry, chapter 21, verse 37. Every day he was teaching in the temple. Jesus didn't go and hide. Jesus didn't shy away. He remained absolutely faithful in his ministry. Right up to the very end. The crucifixion is is now just a matter of days away. And yet, remarkably, Jesus is not thinking about himself here. But he's thinking about others. And he's taking every possible opportunity to preach the gospel to as many people as possible. Verse 38 implies, doesn't it, that Jesus would begin preaching early in the morning. Each day that week he would get up early and he would take the short walk from the Mount of Olives over to the city of Jerusalem and he would go into the city and into the temple and early in the morning he would start preaching. And he would preach to hundreds if not thousands of people each day. He would offer them the gospel. And of course Jesus knew full well that within a few days, many people in those crowds who were listening to him preach the gospel would turn against him. They would call out for him to be crucified. And yet even so, he remained faithful in his ministry, preaching the gospel to anybody who would listen to him. And it shows us just a, a little insight into the heart of Jesus, doesn't it? His love for lost people. His unswerving commitment to offering forgiveness and eternal life to those who clearly don't deserve it. It's a wonderful insight, isn't it, into the heart of Jesus, the way he remained faithful in his ministry. I pray that God would make us faithful in our ministry, just as Christ was. 
And then secondly, see how Jesus remains devoted in worship. How he remains devoted in worship. And whilst all of this is going on, it is also, of course, the the week of the Passover. And so picking up in verse 7, Luke writes, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. So we now discover that it's Thursday of Holy Week. It's the day before Jesus is going to be crucified. And in just a few hours, Judas will hand Jesus over. And Jesus knows that he's only got a few hours with his disciples until his arrest takes place. And his greatest suffering, the greatest suffering, is about to begin. And again, with all of this taking place around him, you could understand if Jesus' thoughts would be elsewhere. But no, we see that Jesus desires to celebrate the Passover feast with his disciples. And he he speaks to Peter and John in particular, these two who must go and make the necessary preparations. What does that involve? Well, first of all, they need to go and get the lamb, a living lamb. It's probably the case that they organized that a few days beforehand. They've got a little lamb somewhere that they're looking after, taking care of, ready for the Passover. And then at some point, some point between half past two and half past five on that Thursday afternoon, Peter and John would have taken the lamb to the temple in order for it to be sacrificed there in the temple forecourt. Of course, not just Peter and John, but thousands of others bringing thousands of Passover lambs for all of them to be slaughtered that day. And then Peter and John must take the body of the lamb that has been slaughtered. They must take it and prepare it for the feast. And as well as that, of course, they must make sure that they have got all the other ingredients that are needed for the Passover feast. The unleavened bread, the herbs, the wine and so forth. And so when Jesus says to them, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it, he means sorting all of those arrangements out. That's Peter and John's job that day. Get it all ready so that Jesus and his disciples can participate in the Passover just as the law required. And very simply, it shows us that even up to the last, Jesus remained devoted in worship. He didn't allow even impending torture and death to distract him from worshipping and obeying his father. Even this would not distract him from fulfilling the plan of salvation. Jesus would fulfill the law, every last bit of it, each day of his life. And he would do so as our representative because none of us has kept the law of God fully. No one else has been truly devoted in worship like we ought to have been. And yet Jesus would be perfectly obedient to his Father's will throughout his whole life. He'd remain 100% devoted in worship. And it's amazing, isn't it, to see the way in which Jesus was fully obedient, fully devoted to his Father. And of course, when our devotion to God wavers 
when our worship of him is not all that it ought to be, when our obedience before him falters, uh, we're to look to Jesus who was perfect in all these ways on our behalf. And so off Peter and John go to make the preparations for the Passover feast. They've got the little lamb in tow. Uh, they're taking this little lamb to the temple. Uh, they've got their shopping list of all the ingredients that they need to buy that afternoon. But there's one detail that they're not sure of, and that is where are they going to celebrate the Passover meal? And that brings us to the third way in which we see this plan of salvation advancing in these verses. We've seen so far, haven't we, that Jesus remains faithful in his ministry and he remains devoted in worship. And then thirdly, he remains in control of events. Jesus remains in control of events. And verses 9 to 13 display that fact for us. And so having been given that instructions, Peter and John say to Jesus, where will you have us prepare the Passover? Then in response to that question, Jesus spelled out precisely the events that were about to take place in the next few minutes and hours. And he says to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And then Luke tells us, doesn't he, that Peter and John went and found it just as Jesus had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Similar to another story that took place earlier on in Luke's gospel, isn't it? Just a, a few days beforehand. Remember back in uh, chapter 19, Jesus had sent two of his disciples ahead of him. And these two disciples were to go uh, not into Jerusalem, but into Bethany. And they would find there, not a man carrying a jar of water, but they would find a colt tied. And there would be a conversation that Jesus predicted. And again, everything played out exactly as Jesus had said. And in both of these little stories, Luke is showing us that even in the midst of these hugely chaotic days, when Jesus is about to be betrayed, and he's about to be arrested and put on trial and then crucified. That nothing is chaotic from Jesus' point of view. He remains in perfect control of events. Because he is fully God, Jesus is omniscient and he is sovereign. That is, he knows everything and it's all under his control. And even as the, the plan of destruction is gathering momentum, we see in these verses that the plan of salvation is moving ahead perfectly to its intended goal. And you might ask, well, what is that intended goal? Where is this plan of salvation heading? What's it all about? And that is made clear to us by the setting or the context of all of these events that we've looked at this evening. Did you notice that four times in this short passage, Luke reminds us that these events were unfolding during the Passover. And the Passover was, of course, the feast that commemorated God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt 
through the death of the Passover lambs, under whose blood the firstborn of Israel were kept safe from God's judgment. On that night, something died in every house in Egypt. Either the firstborn died or the lamb died in their place. In every house in Egypt, something died that night. And in God's providence, the Lamb of God, who is Jesus, would die as the Passover was being celebrated. And of course, it's no mere coincidence, is it? It's to show that Jesus is what Passover is all about. And as Peter and John and as the thousands of other worshippers in Jerusalem hurried around that afternoon, making preparations for the Passover lambs to be put to death, another innocent life was being readied for death. And his death would be the fulfillment to which every Passover lamb had been pointing for the past 1,500 years, ever since God's people had come out of Egypt. And just as those lambs that were slaughtered in Egypt brought safety from judgment and brought deliverance out of slavery, Christ's death would accomplish that in a much greater way for all of God's people. He is the true and ultimate Passover lamb. And he would take upon himself all of his people's punishment. He would die in their place. And he would do so in order to set his people free from their slavery to sin and keep them safe forever from the judgment that they deserve. And you see, don't you, this is the very heart of the plan of salvation. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And everybody who shelters under him, under his shed blood, is 100% safe from God's judgment because Jesus died in their place and they're delivered out of their slavery to sin. And as we close this evening, let me ask you, is that where you're finding shelter tonight? Under Christ, the Passover lamb, trusting in him to keep you safe forever from God's judgment and to deliver you Are you trusting in him, sheltering under him, so that you too are caught up into this grand plan of salvation? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you uh, for the fact that even though evil men and Satan himself threw everything they could against Jesus, nothing could thwart the plan of salvation. We praise you for all that Jesus has accomplished. How even as he faced the brutal reality of the cross, he remained faithful in ministry, offering forgiveness to people as he preached the gospel to them. And not only this, but also he remained devoted in his worship of you, fulfilling the law perfectly on our behalf. We praise you that Jesus was always fully in control of all events, even as he went to the cross, And we praise you that he did so as the Passover lamb, the one whose death was in our place 
to save us from the judgment we deserve and to bring us out of our slavery to sin so that we can be a people of your own possession. And help us all, therefore, to shelter under Christ, to trust in him and what he has done to save his people. We praise you for this wonderful plan of salvation. We thank you that it all centers upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's in his glorious name we pray these things. Amen.